Welcome to Phone Messages, episode 187, Grand Avenue Rapper. My name is Paul Mason Foch. This week, I play message number 28 from Chris Pearson. The message is 2 minutes and 15 seconds long and comes from the summer of 1990. Here we go. Well, my name is Chris, and I'm here to say I'm the Grand Avenue Rapper, and I'm here today to tell my story. It's not gory. A moment of sadness and a moment of glory. I live in Chicago, not Key Largo. I got a lot of mental cargo, but I try to keep chilling. If you're willing, listen to my story, which you'll find thrilling. <laughs> now my crib's on the corner of Grand and Wood. It's where I chill and eat my food. Sometimes I read. I like to play banjo. Sometimes I just sit and look at the window. I'm a painter, not a fainter. A pretty girl sees me and you gotta restrain her. <laughs> Now during the day I paint fake marble, fake wood, it's understood this ain't no garble. I'm working for Jorge, it's the same old story. A moment of failure, then a moment of glory. I make my veins, it's so profane. I must maintain, it's just a name, cause Jorge's cheap and I can't sleep. I lie awake counting the marble sheep. Got dreams of money, a special honey. Maybe a farm with some pigs and bunnies, but life is short and I'm the sort of guy who needs a lot of love and support. So love me, ladies, and love me, gents. Love me, love me, and time well spent. My name is Chris, and it's understood. I'm the baddest rapper at Grand and Wood. I live with my cat here, name is Kevin. My motor's running, cause his engine's revving. He's been good, so he'll go to heaven. My house is furry, cause he's always shedding. Now my name is Chris, and I'm here to say I'm the Grand Avenue Rapper, and I'm here today to tell my story. It's not gory, a moment of sadness and a moment of glory. I live in Chicago, not Key Largo. I got a lot of mental cargo, but I try to keep chilling, and if you're willing, you listen to my story, which you'll find thrilling. That's so funny. That's an early version of the song because I know that the line changed. I'm saying a moment of sadness, then a moment of glory. I think it became a moment of failure, then a moment of glory in the final version of the song. So you moved to Grand and Wood. Maybe 80, 89, something like that. I um, It was a great place. I was probably there for about two years. I remember when we were there, Mike and I and Rich went and saw Public Anime play. Like we were so in, into that. He turned me on to them. I was so into to their music. That was that might have been what got me into the rapping. But I also remember liking Tone Loke a lot, too, and that sort of party rap. I don't know if I ever asked you, did you tell me your the first concert you went to? I think it was Devo. I mean, that was the first one I really remember, but it may not have been Devo. I think I just like to say it was Devo. In reality, it might have been like Pat Benatar and Eddie Money or something. But, you know, when I grew up in New York, they had these concert series. I think it was first Schaefer Beer and then Dr. Pepper sponsored it. And they were in Central Park in Woolman Rink. And you get into the show for either three or five dollars. And I know I started going to these shows as early as 78. 
it, it was so cheap that, you know, if you had nothing to do on a Friday night, you know, sometimes I would just go even to see someone I didn't know and just check it out. But the ones that were the most memorable certainly were the Ramones and Bob Marley and Devo was a big one for me. You know, if you had kept some kind of record, that would be amazing if well, you, you had that. Well, you know, I don't. But for years, when you saw the, the concerts, you got a button. You know, it was kind of a big button. It was maybe two inches across. It'd be a white button that had the artist on it. And then they would give that to you when you walked in there. So people who saw all the shows... They, they, they'd wear all the buttons. They, they, they were like, they, they'd show up there and they'd have like 20 buttons on their jacket. You know, that was kind of the cool thing to do. To be able to go to so much music. Oh, um, yeah. I mean, I went to Studio 54. Uh, I used to go to CBGB's, all those places. but and, and often by myself. Don't you have to be 21 or what no. was the age? It was 18 back then. Um, in New, I, I think I was the last year where the drinking age was 18. But when I was 13, I, I passed for 18 or maybe they didn't care back then. I, I mean, I know I had, I had a fake ID that I got in Times Square. It wasn't the way it is now where the IDs have some sort of a chip in the back that they can scan. Um, I used to go to bars when I was 13 years old. I remember hanging out in this German bar in the neighborhood of Yorkville, where I grew up in the Upper East Side, and going in there, you could put that a dollar down on the table and get two beers and leave a 15 cent tip. I mean, they, they, they were pretty small beers, but I and I'd hang out there and on a Friday or Saturday night, it would just be a bunch of these like 13 and 14 year old kids and these old German men. I mean, I don't even remember even getting carded going to places like 54, but I think they probably liked having younger people in there, too. I think, you know, they, they probably thought it was it was sexy. Did your parents did they know you were drinking or? It's a good question. Um, I they they were pretty hands off with me. I remember one night our, our apartment was well, it was L shaped and looked out into a courtyard and, and I was on one end and my parents bedroom was on the other end. So if I looked out my window, I could look into my parents window and I remember coming home drunk and going to my room and vomiting, puking out the back window. And then I look over and there's my mom looking out the other window. Maybe five minutes later, there's a little knock in the door. And I opened my door and there was like a big pot in it to, to puke in. She just le left, left the pot and then I went back to her room. And I'm not saying she, she was a bad, she was a, a great mom, you know, but they were always very sort of hands off with, with me and let me do whatever I wanted to. I don't know if that was a style of parenting back then, but, but they were very passive parents, you know, like I remember coming home tripping on acid and I had two friends of mine or maybe three friends from school. And I remember talking to my parent, parents, I mean, not about they're like, oh, how are you doing? You look a little bit funny. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I feel, feel kind of funny. And, and they probably saw it. And they're like, you know what? We're going out to the movies now. Um, we'll see you later on. And they just left. While Chris likes to remember his first concert as Devo, he also acknowledges that it could have been something else. In fact, of the three groups he mentioned seeing at Woolman Rink, it was Bob Marley and the Wailers who performed earliest. The year was 1975, and tickets were only two fifty for ground level and $1.50 for the balcony. However, after telling Chris the year of Marley's show, he said he was actually thinking of Peter Tosh 
who played in August of 1979. Tosh, of course, was a former whaler and performed some of their songs in his set. The Ramones also took the Woolman Rink stage in 79 and Devo in 1980, when tickets had been bumped up to 5 and $3. When the festival began in 1966, admission was only a dollar, and the sponsor was Rheingold Beer. Schaefer Beer became sponsor in 1968, and Dr. Pepper took over in 1977. Noise complaints forced a move to Pier 84 on the Hudson in 1981, and sponsorship of the concerts changed again in 83 when Miller Beer stepped in. Finally, Reebok sponsored the show's last two years, 89 and 90. A 1991 Newsday article blamed the demise of the concert series on the conditions of the pier's lease, which limited ticket prices, and a bad location. One promoter called it a flat, ugly pier on the wrong side of town on a polluted river. You can find me at a beautiful location, pfoch.com. That's P-F-O-T-S-C-H dot com. The interview was edited this week by Chris's niece, Sadie Levin. Many thanks to her and to Chris for his 70s flashback. And thank you for listening. Talk to you next week.